A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. From The Triumph of Life by Percy Bysshe Shelley As in that trance of wondrous thought I lay, This was the tenor of my waking dream. Methought I sate beside a public way, Thick strewn with summer dust, And a great stream of people there Was hurrying to and fro, Numerous as gnats upon the evening gleam, all hastening onward, yet none seemed to know whither he went, or whence he came, or why he made one of the multitude, and so was borne amid the crowd, as through the sky, one of the million leaves of summer's beer. Old age and youth, manhood and infancy, mixed in one mighty torrent did appear some flying from the thing they feared, and some seeking the object of another's fear, and others, as with steps towards the tomb, poured on the trodden worms that crawled beneath, and others mournfully within the gloom of their own shadow walked, and called it death. And some fled from it as it were a ghost, half fainting in the affliction of vain breath. But more, with motions which each other crossed, Pursued or shunned the shadows the clouds threw, Or birds within the noonday ether lost, Upon that path where flowers never grew. And, weary with vain toil and faint for thirst, Heard not the fountains, whose melodious dew Out of their mossy cells forever burst nor felt the breeze which from the forest told of grassy paths and woodlawns interspersed with overarching elms and caverns cold, and violet banks where sweet dreams brood. But they pursued their serious folly as of old. This is a passage from Percy Bysshe Shelley's last great poem. And it's so good, it's considered a great poem in spite of the fact that he left it unfinished when he died at the age of 29 in 1822. Shelley is considered a late Romantic poet. Uh, he was a generation younger than Wordsworth and Coleridge, who we looked at in episodes... 32 and 34, and we might even include Blake as an earlier Romantic poet, who we saw last month in episode 52. The triumph of life begins in a deliberately conventional mode, that of the dream vision. 
which Shelley would have known was a staple of medieval literature. What typically happens is that the speaker of the poem falls asleep or falls into a trance and sees a vision in their dream, in their trance. One famous example from 14th century English poetry is William Langland's long poem, Piers Plowman, where the speaker wanders through the Malvern Hills, lies down to sleep and dreams a vision of a fair field full of folk, representing the life of humanity in the world. So at the start of Shelley's poem, which I haven't read you, the narrator says that he was outside in the countryside when he found himself in a strange trance, which was not slumber, and then a vision on my brain was rolled. And then the vision begins just as you've heard. As in that trance of wondrous thought I lay, this was the tenor of my waking dream. Then we get this amazing vision of humanity out in the countryside, similar to Piers Plowman, but Shelley has given us a road rather than a field. Methought I sate beside a public way, thick strewn with summer dust, and a great stream of people there was hurrying to and fro, numerous as gnats upon the evening gleam, all hastening onward. Yet none seemed to know whither he went, or whence he came, or why he made one of the multitude, and so was borne amid the crowd, as through the sky, one of the million leaves of summer's beer. Old age and youth, manhood and infancy, mixed in one mighty torrent did appear. And Shelley follows this with a wonderfully precise psychological description of their progress. Some flying from the thing they feared, and some seeking the object of another's fear, and others, as with steps towards the tomb, poured on the trodden worms that crawled beneath, and others mournfully, within the gloom of their own shadow walked, and called it death. And some fled from it as it were a ghost, half fainting in the affliction of vain breath. But more, with motions which each other crossed, pursued or shunned the shadows the clouds threw, or birds within the noonday ether lost. So all of these people are either pursuing or fleeing from something. And I think the Buddha would be proud of this description of the way human beings spend their lives caught up in desire and fear. But being a romantic poet rather than a Buddhist, Shelley doesn't suggest that their salvation would come from sitting cross-legged in meditation, but simply by turning aside to contemplate the beauties of nature. He says they are hurrying upon that path where flowers never grew. And, weary with vain toil and faint for thirst, heard not the fountains whose melodious dew out of their mossy cells forever burst. Nor felt the breeze which from the forest told of grassy paths and woodlawns interspersed with overarching elms and caverns cold and violet banks where sweet dreams brood. 
So they are so focused on their fears and desires that they fail to notice the fountains bursting out of their mossy cells. Uh, So I assume that the fountains are little waterfalls in the forest streams. And I want to pick up on that word forever when he says that the fountains out of their mossy cells forever burst. And we can read forever as meaning continually, but also I think Shelley is offering us a glimpse of eternity in these fountains, as if the world of nature is a timeless and blessed realm that the poor deluded humans are oblivious to. Because eternity is never far away in Shelley's poetry. Adonais, his great elegy for John Keats, contains the following stunning lines. Life, like a dome of many-coloured glass, stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples it to fragments. So these lines describe death trampling life to bits, And I can't help thinking of the famous medieval painting, The Triumph of Death, by Peter Bruegel the Elder, which features an army of skeletons, death's minions, rampaging through the countryside and killing human beings in all sorts of horrible ways. It's like the nightmare version of Langland's Fairfield Full of Folk. And in one corner of the painting... A couple of skeletons are riding a horse and cart, crushing people to death under the horse's hooves and the wheels of the cart, while one of the skeletons plays a jolly tune on a hurdy-gurdy. So, given that The Triumph of Death was a massive cliché in many different artistic genres, and given that Shelley is describing a vision of human beings hurrying along the road to the tomb and maybe recalling those lines from Adonais, we might reasonably expect Shelley to call this poem The Triumph of Death. And it certainly looks like that's what we're being shown a few lines further on, after the passage I've read for you, when Shelley describes a chariot appearing with a hooded figure sitting inside it. So came a chariot on the silent storm of its own rushing splendour, and a shape so sate within as one whom years deform, beneath the dusky hood and double cape, crouching within the shadow of a tomb. And o'er what seemed the head, a cloud-like crape was bent, a dun and faint ethereal gloom, tempering the light. Shelley wrote this poem in Italy shortly after visiting Rome, where he had been fascinated and appalled by the descriptions of the Roman triumph, the celebration after a military conquest, where the returning victor would parade through the streets of Rome, leading captive kings and warriors behind his chariot. And the conqueror was showered with applause and garlanded with flowers, while the poor captives would have been accorded a rather different treatment by the crowd. 
And Shelley goes on to compare the figure in the chariot to a Roman conqueror's triumphal pageant, with a captive multitude of people being dragged behind it, and more people dancing around it who are then crushed beneath the wheels of the chariot, just like the horse and cart in Bruegel's painting of the triumph of death. And so... Confronted by this horrific spectacle, Shelley's narrator can't help asking who is the figure in the chariot. Struck to the heart by this sad pageantry, half to myself I said, and what is this? Whose shape is that within the car? And why, I would have added, is all here amiss? But a voice answered, life! And, of course, we know the answer already because Shelley gave it to us in the poem's title, The Triumph of Life. And if you were hoping that a poem called The Triumph of Life would be an optimistic, joyful, uplifting poem, then I'm sorry to disappoint you. Because what Shelley presents us with is not life triumphing over death, but life triumphing over humanity. As the chariot moves forward, it rolls over maidens and youths and leaves behind old men and women foully disarrayed who shake their grey hairs in the insulting wind. Life is relentless and remorseless in its progress and human beings are as ephemeral and expendable as autumn leaves or gnats in the evening air. So the triumph of life is a terrifying and appalling idea. And if you read the whole poem, you will see that Shelley has done this monstrous concept justice with his unforgettable description. Richard Holmes, in his biography of Shelley, calls this one of the great images of English poetry. And it's an image that is extended and built up so that it becomes even more inspiring and horrific over several hundred lines. And obviously, there's not room for me to read the whole thing here, but I will include a link on the website, a mouthfulofair.fm, if you are brave enough to read the whole thing. So, as Holmes says, the image of the triumph of life in its chariot is one of the great images in English poetry. But the poet who overshadows Shelley's poem is a great Italian poet, Dante Alighieri, the author of the greatest medieval visionary poem of them all, The Divine Comedy. And there is absolutely no doubt that Shelley meant us to think of Dante as we read The Triumph of Life. Shelley could read Italian, so he had the great privilege of being able to read Dante in the original, and several of the images in his poem are lifted straight from Dante. The idea of life as a road that we walk upon is, of course, from the opening line of the Divine Comedy. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita midway along the road of our life. And Shelley's description of the individuals born amid the crowd as through the sky one of the million leaves of summer's beer recalls the famous image in Dante's Inferno where the damned souls are waiting on a riverbank to be ferried across into hell. Here are Dante's lines as translated by Longfellow. 
As in the autumn time the leaves fall off, first one and then another, till the branch unto the earth surrenders all its spoils. In similar wise the evil seed of Adam throw themselves from that margin one by one. And just like the narrator of Dante's poem, Shelley's narrator looks at the spectacle of humanity hurrying to its doom and is entranced and appalled. And just at the point where the hero is feeling overwhelmed, his mentor appears in true hero's journey style. So in Dante's Inferno, Virgil, the great Roman poet, appears as his guide through hell. In The Triumph of Life, it is Rousseau, the 18th century philosopher, who appears and explains the vision to Shelley's narrator. So, Shelley borrows several elements from Dante. The basic scenario, the road of life, the image of humanity being whirled along like autumn leaves, and the wise mentor who helps the hero make sense of the horrors that he faces. But even more than this, the thing that inspired Shelley to what T.S. Eliot called some of the greatest and most Dantesque lines in English is the verse form. The form is called terza rima, or terza rima, as we call it in English. <laughs> it was invented by Dante and is forever associated with him. The name terza rima means third rhyme, and the form is composed of tercets, three-line stanzas, which are linked together by interlocking triple rhymes. So the first terset of a passage of Terzarima rhymes A-B-A, meaning the first and the third lines rhyme. And that B rhyme in the middle line then rhymes with the first and third lines of the following stanza. So that one rhymes B-C-B. And that C rhyme, you guessed it, then spawns another two rhymes in the stanza after that one, so that it rhymes CDC, and so on and so on, until the poet can't stand it anymore and ends with a single line on its own. In Italian, terza rima lines are typically hendeca syllables, which means they have 11 syllables, which is roughly equivalent to the English iambic pentameter the familiar titum, 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 titum. So that meter is traditionally what's used for terza rima in English. And Shelley uses it in The Triumph of Life very fluidly and effectively. And terza rima is a bit of a niche form in English, but it has appeared on this podcast before, back in episode 21, when Selena Rodriguez used it in her poem Organza. And I was only half joking just now when I said that Terzarima continues until the poet can't stand it anymore because it's much harder to do this triple rhyme in English than it is in Italian. As I've said before, in relation to the Petrarchan sonnet, Italian has a lot more rhyming words than English does. And Eliot said in his lecture on Dante that I just quoted that one of the difficulties of doing terzarima in English is that not only does English have fewer rhymes, but they are more emphatic and they call too much attention to themselves. He says that Italian is the only language he knows of where exact rhyme can achieve its effect without obtruding itself. 
And as a practicing poet, I know this difficulty from my own experience. A double rhyme in English is relatively easy, but triple rhymes get hard. For instance, I'm working on a long-term project, translating Geoffrey Chaucer's poem Troilus and Cressida from medieval English into modern English. And I read an extract from that back in episode 12. And I'm sticking to Chaucer's Rhyme Royal, which is a seven-line stanza, and every stanza includes one triple rhyme. And I have to tell you, in just about every stanza, that triple rhyme is the hardest bit to crack. Well, Terzurima is nothing but triple rhymes, so it's frankly a demanding and scary, but also an enticing form to write in English. Now, I have to say Shelley is not very adventurous with his rhymes in the passage we're looking at today. He uses a lot of the obvious rhymes, lay and way, dream, stream and gleam, fro, no and so, through, grew and due, told, cold and old, and so on. You'll notice that these are all single-syllable rhymes. He does throw in the odd multi-syllable word, for example, rhyming thirst and burst with interspersed, but even here he only rhymes on one syllable. But remember what Eliot said about the risk of rhymes in English being too emphatic? If Shelley had used fancy rhymes with unusual words or rhyming two or three syllables at a time, they would have called far too much attention to themselves. The poem would have sounded much more stilted and artificial. And that's not what Shelley wants, because the triumph of life is anything but stilted. It's a headlong, rushing poem. And Terzurima is the perfect form for this because it is relentless in its forward movement. It keeps going. It keeps generating itself. Every middle rhyme spawns two more rhymes in the following stanza, which contains another middle rhyme which spawns two more rhymes and so on, ad infinitum. It's like watching one of those fractal videos that keep opening up and opening up until your mind is thoroughly boggled. Another analogy occurred to me recently while writing a poem of my own in Terzurima. It reminded me of a maddening race we had to do at primary school where you have two small mats and you have to step on the first mat and throw the other one in front of you. Then you step onto the second mat and pull the other one round from behind you and step onto that one. And writing Terzurima feels a bit like that, you know. You have to keep throwing out those two rhymes ahead of you so that you have somewhere to land. Yet another image that comes to mind is a combine harvester with three rotating blades that keep whirling relentlessly and you definitely don't want to be caught in its path. Or a conveyor belt that keeps running and running until you stop it. And of course, that's perfect for Dante and Shelley's description of life as a road where we are being hurried forward whether we want to or not. And Shelley accentuates and accelerates this headlong effect by extensive use of enjambment, where a grammatical phrase runs on over the end of one line to the beginning of the next one. For example, the passage I read today begins... As in that trance of wondrous thought I lay, this was the tenor of my waking dream. So 
these lines are what's known as end-stopped, meaning the end of the line is the end of a grammatical unit. The end of the first line is the end of a clause, as in that trance of wondrous thought I lay. And the end of the second line is the end of a sentence. This was the tenor of my waking dream. But after these two lines, the lines start to become enjammed. Methought I sate beside a public way, thick strewn with summer dust, and a great stream of people there was hurrying to and fro, numerous as gnats upon the evening gleam, all hastening onward, yet none seemed to know whither he went, or whence he came, or why he made one of the multitude. So starting with the line, methought I sate beside a public way. Way is the end of the line. But we hardly notice it because we're going straight into thick strewn with summer dust, which is the start of the next line. Then we get, and a great stream, line break, of people there was hurrying to and fro. It's as if we're falling from one line to another, like rushing headlong down a spiral staircase. And this effect accelerates in the next tercet, where the phrases know where he went and why he made are stretched over the line endings. All hastening onward, yet none seemed to know whither he went or whence he came or why he made one of the multitude and so was born amid the crowd. And then we get the words and so, teetering at the end of not only the line, but also the stanza, so that the phrase, and so, was born amid the crowd, feels like it's falling from one stanza and landing on the one below. So it really feels like we're being hurried along over the ends of these lines, just like the people in the crowd being hurried along by their fears and desires. And you know, after this line which ends with a colon and a dash. This was the tenor of my waking dream. Just about the only punctuation marks in the long passage I've read are commas, semicolons, and dashes. There is a colon after the word half-fainting in the affliction of vain breath, but there's not really much respite given that we're straight into but more with motions which each other crossed in the next line. So it's like one long slide with just a few bumps all the way down to the full stop at the end. Upon that path where flowers never grew. And, weary with vain toil and faint for thirst, heard not the fountains whose melodious dew out of their mossy cells forever burst. Nor felt the breeze which from the forest told of grassy paths and woodlawns interspersed with overarching elms and caverns cold, and violet banks where sweet dreams brood. But they pursued their serious folly as of old. Can you feel the helter-skelter effect of those lines spilling into each other with no full stops to slow us down until we reach the end? It makes the poem quite hard to read aloud because there, there's not many spaces for you to catch your breath. And you even get that effect, I think, from reading silently on the page. You know, if ever there was a page-turner of a poem, it's the triumph of life. 
And let's just pause to savour that wonderful phrase, serious folly, when Shelley says, the people pursued their serious folly as of old. What a great phrase that is. Look at any 21st century newspaper, or look at the crowd rushing along any 21st century street, and the phrase is still a perfectly apt description of the kind of stuff we all get caught up in. Rushing out to work, working insanely long hours, arguing over politics, falling in and out of love, watching football, gambling away fortunes, waging wars, and so on. And we take it all so seriously, because on one level, it is deadly serious. But from another perspective, it's pure folly. So in this poem, I think Shelley's captured something that rings disturbingly true about life. And famously, his own life ended before he could complete the poem, which was left behind in various untidy manuscripts when he was drowned in a storm at sea. So, Shelley certainly fulfilled the criteria for a romantic poet. Live fast, die young, take opium, incite revolution, and meet your fate in dramatic fashion, preferably somewhere picturesque. Have a listen to this. This is the end of the unfinished manuscript of The Triumph of Life, the very last words he wrote of the poem. And some grew weary of the ghastly dance and fell as I have fallen by the wayside. Those soonest from whose forms most shadows passed and least of strength and beauty did abide. Then what is life? I cried. And that's it. (laughs) That's the end. The last words of the poet before he goes to his untimely death. I mean, if you were writing a novel about a romantic poet who died young while writing a poem about the tragic swiftness of life, and you wanted to make up the poignant last line of the unfinished poem, that's the line you'd want, isn't it? Then what is life? I cried. You could hardly do better than that. And I'm tempted to suggest that Shelley was tempting fate when he portrayed life as a triumphant figure trampling human beings to pieces in their prime. Because there's certainly a tragic irony in the fact that he was writing a poem on this very subject when he was cut off in his prime. But of course... It must have been just a coincidence, mustn't it? From The Triumph of Life by Percy Bysshe Shelley As in that trance of wondrous thought I lay, this was the tenor of my waking dream. Methought I sate beside a public way, thick strewn with summer dust, and a great stream of people there was hurrying to and fro, numerous as gnats upon the evening gleam, all hastening onward, 
Yet none seemed to know whither he went, or whence he came, or why he made one of the multitude, and so was born amid the crowd, as through the sky, one of the million leaves of summer's beer. Old age and youth, manhood and infancy, mixed in one mighty torrent did appear. Some flying from the thing they feared, and some seeking the object of another's fear. And others, as with steps towards the tomb, poured on the trodden worms that crawled beneath. And others mournfully, within the gloom of their own shadow walked, and called it death. And some fled from it, as it were a ghost, half fainting in the affliction of vain breath. But more, with motions which each other crossed, pursued or shunned the shadows the clouds threw, or birds within the noonday ether lost, upon that path where flowers never grew. And, weary with vain toil and faint for thirst, heard not the fountains whose melodious dew out of their mossy cells forever burst nor felt the breeze which from the forest told of grassy paths and woodlawns interspersed with overarching elms and caverns cold, and violet banks where sweet dreams brood. But they pursued their serious folly as of old. Percy Bysshe Shelley was an English poet who was born in 1792 and died in 1822. He came from an establishment background, the son of an MP, educated at Eton and Oxford. But he was expelled from Oxford for writing a pamphlet on the necessity of atheism and went on to express radical political views in his poems, essays and pamphlets. His writing was not widely known during his life, but his influential friends included Lord Byron and William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, whose daughter Mary he eloped with after the breakdown of his first marriage to Harriet Westbrook. After his death at the age of 29, he came to be regarded as a leading romantic poet, known for his lyrics, odes, and a series of long poems including Adonais, Prometheus Unbound, and The Triumph of Life. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, 
you can sign up for this at a mouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at a mouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.